Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about teeth. So many implications with teeth. Teeth and beauty. That's right. Yeah. uh, First things first, we, i.e. humans, have been messing around with our teeth in the form of oral modification or dental modification for a long, long time for all sorts of reasons, including health reasons, beauty reasons, religious reasons, rites of passage, social status, etc. There is a, a world history contained in our chompers. I know, which is so interesting that, it, that we have, and obviously we'll talk about this, but we have such a history as humans of messing with our teeth for various reasons and like animals, you know, like apes, our ape ancestors weren't like, let me file this down or let me pull a molar or whatever. You know, it's like this is such a person thing. Well, because if I mean, we could do a whole series of podcasts on body modification. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, humans really love messing around with their bodies, whether it's tattooing our skin or piercing holes in ears and other places mm-hmm. or in this case, Messing around with the appearance of our teeth, whether it is for health or purely aesthetic purposes. Yeah. So let's go back, as we often do, to the ancient Egyptians who developed a lot of dental treatments, including fillings and false teeth. So already we're like, hey, you're missing a tooth. We better get that fixed. Yeah. Egyptians. And a little bit later on, the very first historical record of a purely aesthetic tooth modification came in the 7th century B.C. with the Etruscans, who would sometimes wear these gold bands around their teeth. And it was usually exclusively worn by women. And some people think that they were like a form of primitive braces that actually might have been used to hold false teeth in place. Yeah, but the false teeth weren't very convincing, right? Because they were made out of things like other animals' teeth. Yeah. No, they the, the Etruscan false tooth technology, not, <laughs> not tip-top. Je- Jenny over there is wearing that hippopotamus tooth. It's just protruding. <laughs> Doesn't she know we can all tell? I didn't know Jenny was an Etruscan name. It just came out of me. But anyway, so these primitive types of braces have also been found on mummies that predate the Etruscans, made out of this thing called cat gut, which apparently is not cat gut. Yeah, it's not the gut of a cat. No. A cat, the cat in cat gut is short for cattle, but a lot of times cat gut would have been the intestines, the dried intestines of sheep or goats. So why they didn't call it goat gut, Caroline, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure it was something different in their language. <laughs> Probably. So why are archaeologists calling it that? I, you know, I don't know. We have so many follow-up questions already. Um, but long story short, what we're trying to get at is the fact that we have been wearing braces types of gear in our mouths for a very, very, very long time. In the case of the Etruscans, it was more ornamental, but there were also practical reasons for it as well to hold those teeth in place. Because we also didn't have things like, you know, your Sonicare toothbrush <laughs> and mouthwash and fluoride rinse, etc. That's right. And fancy Elizabethan ladies, they they would modify their teeth. They actually put wax balls called puffers 
in place of missing teeth so that their cheeks wouldn't appear sunken in. So this is another aesthetic aesthetic uh, alteration. Which does remind me of when I was a kid, when I would be losing my baby teeth, if I was chewing gum. This might be a very <laughs> gross detail to add. I think we all, I did this too. You, I made, did you make your own puffers? Yeah. You kind of poke it up into the space left by the tooth? Well, I also stuck chiclets on my actual teeth. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, that, you t- put chiclets on your teeth, bugles on your fingers. Right. <laughs> endless entertainment. That's right. Um, but yeah, so there's a million different ways. I mean, talk about body modification. There's a million different ways that humans throughout history and still today modify their smiles. And the whole point of this is that a perfect, in quotes, smile is culturally relative. Mm -hmm. In in a lot of ways, it depends on where you are. Because um, if we go across history and also around the world, there have been four main types of dental modification, which includes Ablation, which is intentionally removing certain teeth. Filing, drilling with inlays, like putting uh, Kesha, I believe, (laughs) she with the money symbol in her name, had a little diamond put into one of her teeth. That's an inlay. And also staining, Mm -hmm. which we would think of today when we whiten our teeth. That's right, because it was the opposite way with those silly Egyptians. They would stain their teeth red because they thought that the natural color of teeth was, like, gross or something. Yeah, yeah. Which is so, so, so interesting. It's all relative. It it is all relative. For instance, in Japan, ancient Japan, they would blacken their teeth for a couple of reasons. It showed a woman had come of age. It did show wealth. But also, women in Japan would blacken their teeth to hide their mouth expressions. It wasn't until a Japanese empress actually set an example for white teeth for women that that natural teeth took off. Well, and that was, too, if I remember it correctly, a process of Japan intentionally wanting to become more westernized in appearance to the outside world. And so it was outlawed, yeah, that women even blacken their teeth, although it is still practiced among some uh, women, like in in more remote areas here and there of uh, Southeast Asia. Hmm. Um, but speaking of uh, puffers and those Elizabethan ladies, apparently in Elizabethan England as well, there was a brief fad of blackening teeth. So hmm. you put your puffers in, you blacken your teeth, then you go to court. <laughs> that would be horrifying. Can you imagine like all of a sudden we live in a world where you can like teleport back in time and you show up at the court of in Elizabeth and you England. have white teeth and everyone's like so um, embarrassing poser. I know. And they're like, what is she wearing? What are these pants? These pants you speak of. And then something that to me personally is uh, more horrifying than just like blackening your teeth um, is the pain that would accompany getting a, uh, a tattoo on your gums. This has been a practice or had been a practice in Senegal to signal a woman's coming of age. What is all this, all this tooth modification to signal like sexual availability? Kind of. Yeah. Sexual availability status. Yeah. Um, there is similarly, um, in Morocco, uh, way back when they would also practice gum darkening in order to make their teeth appear even whiter. Now, this is something that is still a marker of female beauty and is a very coveted trait that is not actually a dental modification, but something that you would rather hope to be born with. And that is 
the gap tooth and uh, essentially the having a wide space between your two front teeth. And that is still a coveted trait among women in Nigeria, Ghana and Namibia in particular. And there are certain family groups who are known to have this tooth gap. And it's seen as like the most beautiful smile a woman could possibly have. Right, because Orange is the New Black actress Uzo Adubo, otherwise known as Crazy Eyes in the show, she has a tooth gap. And Kristen has a great blog post over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com that quotes her from an interview talking about how she was begging and begging and begging to get the gap closed up as a kid. And her mom said, look, (laughs) Missy, that's history in your mouth. That is family history in your mouth. That's how people know our family. And it's beautiful. And so... It is it, it is a celebration in many cultures. It just happens to be in the West. Typically, we get that closed up. Although you do see some high fashion models here mm-hmm. and there who will have the gap tooth. And when I was researching for that blog post, I did run across one trend piece in The Guardian from a couple years back talking about how, oh, the gap tooth is, is the hot new thing, which I'm sure would would make Nigerians laugh because what well, a hot new thing. What are you talking about? It's yeah. always been gorgeous. Well, you just said because you have people like Georgia Mae Jagger. Who has a big gap tooth? But you have Madonna too, who's had one forever, but whatever. There's also snaggle teeth, which are really popular. And they've been really popular in Japan. It's this whole concept of wabi sabi, which is the idea of finding beauty in imperfections. Yeah. And so, uh, some people might have seen this, these kinds of Japanese trend pieces popping up in the past couple of years about younger girls in particular going and having their teeth, like artificially kind of snaggletoothed in a way, having them put into where they overlap on each other. And it was it's in order to achieve this look um, that's associated with being being a younger girl. It looks very innocent and young. Mm -hmm. Now, something that would be. Now, something far more painful is teeth chiseling, which is still practiced by some remote tribes, uh, particularly in Indonesia. And sometimes it's for a coming of age. Sometimes it's something uh, done primarily to women to show that they have matured and are of age. And it is exactly what it sounds like. Their teeth are chiseled into sharp points. Mm, I don't know. But then there are ancient cultures also who... considered sharp teeth to be equated to like monsters and scary deities and so that they would file their teeth down to be the opposite of sharp. Yeah, that's what they uh, would do in Bali in order to ward off negative emotions like anger and jealousy. File those teeth down. So in terms of ablation, though, like we said, intentionally removing teeth, the Aranda people of Australia would actually remove a tooth from a boy's mouth as a rite of passage. And then the boy's mom would stick the tooth in a gum tree. And once the boy died, the tree would be stripped of its bark. Yeah, once he once he grew up and then died. And then I guess that would be part of the funeral rites. Interesting. His, his tooth tree would be stripped. So all sorts of fascinating dental modifications going on in all sorts of cultures around the world, which brings us to what we think of as the perfect smile by Western standards today, which is very white and very straight. And the history of how we 
whitened and straightened our teeth is also pretty fascinating. So when it comes to how we began brushing our teeth every day, twice a day and flossing, uh, from medieval times through the Renaissance, tooth cleaning, as you would probably guess, was very DIY. You would essentially wipe them down with a cloth. You might swish around with vinegar or wine, which I don't, I don't know. Maybe I hope it was white wine. Um, <laughs> and then you might chew on things like mint, rosemary or other fragrant herbs in order to freshen your breath because they did not have proper toothbrushes. And toothpaste. Some of them had a semi-proper toothbrush because in the 17th century, uh, some people were using a bristle brush for their teeth. That came to Europe from China. Yeah. And then fast forward to 1857 when the first toothbrush is patented. And then in the 1880s, the first electronic toothbrush, surprise, surprise, is sold. And then soon after, in the 1890s, we get dental floss. Something that I neglected to Google and I totally wanted to and should have is that first electronic toothbrush. I want to see what it looks like because I imagine it to be like this huge contraption with a giant plug or whatever. I don't know. Something like a torture device. But I, I need to do that. Mental note, I'll do that later. I feel like it was probably really dangerous to <laughs> yeah. use just because it would have been presumably close to water and <laughs> thinking about electricity at that time. Yeah, uh, needed needed a lot of safety instructions. Um, but so when we move into the 20th century, we, we get a huge uptick in the pace of our dental technology and bright white Teeth gradually become the standard. We have obviously moved away from red Egyptian teeth and black Japanese teeth, but it still wasn't until after World War II that teeth brushing in the U.S. really became a thing. Yeah, because soldiers were instructed to brush their teeth to avoid getting something called trench mouth. (laughs) But we should note that William Colgate and company, that name probably rings a brand name bell to a lot of listeners, began selling toothpaste in the U.S. in the late 1800s. So it was around. It probably just wasn't in every single home because, as we'll talk about more later in the podcast, higher-end dental care and having things that we would think of today as being so basic as a toothbrush and toothpaste have largely been related to class and your financial situation. Right. And so, I mean, speaking of money, by 1997, Americans were spending $383 million per year on over-the-counter whitening products. I had to stop using whitening stuff because it was like my gums are not, it was not good for me. So now I have to use Sensodyne stuff, type toothpaste, because my teeth were getting too sensitive from whitening. Cautionary tale. Caroline. I know the cycle of the cycle of whitening. But it, fast forward to 2010 and the New York Times was reporting on cosmetic dental ceramists having to make sure that their veneers didn't look too perfect because we'd been pursuing these white, 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 perfect, perfect teeth for so many years. And suddenly people are like, your teeth just look fake. I want real looking teeth. And so now if you're shelling out anywhere from 700 to twenty five hundred dollars for veneers, if you have the means, a lot of people are asking for slightly like tinted veneers that, that look more realistic. Yeah. And, and the funny thing about it is, first of all, just the fact that this trend piece exists and they were able to interview these dentists who were scoffing at how white some people's veneers are because 
these wealthy clients usually would walk into the dentist's office and want a look that they saw in a Hollywood tabloid. But the dentists were like, what you don't realize is that when those paparazzi photos are being taken or red carpet photos are being taken, the flash from the cameras is reflecting off of the teeth, making them appear even whiter than they normally are. So if you get teeth that are as white as you see in Us Weekly and People magazine, then they will be almost blindingly white, which does hearken my brain back to that episode in Friends when Ross gets, I think his teeth whiten and they're way too white. And I now feel old for making a Friends joke. It's distracting. Like, Talking to someone whose teeth are obviously like super, super white. I well, can't help but stare at their mouth. It's incredible that we're to this point to where your teeth can be too white and too perfect. Yeah. We have jumped the shark. But in addition to the pursuit of white, there's also been the pursuit of the straight teeth. And so we have a brief history of braces, which, fun fact, barbers were the first dentist. Didn't you know when you go to the barber, that's where you'd also go to get a bad tooth pulled way back in the day. So... It is a good thing that oral technology has come the long way that it has. Uh, but orthodontia actually took off in the 18th century, which isn't so surprising that it's been around that long when you think about the fact that those Etruscan women were wearing those gold bands yeah, and man. the mum- mummies had primitive braces on as well. Cat gut. Yeah. Oh, cat gut. Well, it's actually uh, some French folks who took us far, far from cat gut uh, to more modern braces, sort of, kind of. In 1728, French dentist Pierre Fauchard published a book called The Surgeon Dentist, which described... What sounds terribly painful, it's some kind of device called a bandeau. And braces, the brace technology really didn't change all that much up until the 1950s. Yeah, and this brief history, by the way, is coming from the fabulous folks at Mental Floss. And after the 50s, you have an accelerated pace of orthodontia technology. So by the mid-70s, orthodontists have figured out how to put those brackets on the front of our teeth. And then by the 80s, they figured out, ha, this is how we put them on the back of our teeth. And so by the 1990s, around a third of U.S. kids are getting braces. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like it's almost a standard, almost box you check. Once you have a kid, you start taking him to the dentist. It's like, well, will he or she get braces or not? Yeah. I never had braces. I had them on my bottom teeth. They they wanted to wait to put them on my top teeth because they wanted to break my jaw and bring it forward because I have an overbite. But I was like, I'm not going to let you do that. You don't know this yet, but I'm not going to let you do that. So I never end up getting braces on my top teeth. And they look great. Oh, thanks. They have beautiful teeth. I feel like they're better from this side. I'm turning my left side to Kristen because this side I have a crooked tooth. And today is the day I learned that Caroline has a preferred tooth side. I do. So when the paparazzi finally find me. Down here in Atlanta, <laughs> you'll know which side to turn. Take, take the picture from the left. Well, the whole reason why we were even inspired to do this episode on teeth is that when it comes to braces in particular, it's far likelier that little Janie's going to get braces compared to little Johnny or that she is going to want braces. That She's going to look in the mirror and see her teeth and think those are not up to snuff. 
Now, going back to earlier in the podcast when we were taking a trip around the world with <laughs> different forms of dental modification, there were some that were exclusively targeted to women in those cultures, mm-hmm. such as the tooth blackening in Japan and tooth chiseling among certain groups. But also now today, braces tend to happen more often among Girls. It's really interesting looking at girls and also their parents wanting girls to get braces. But there was a 2012 study that looked at the factors that go into children, young people, teens wanting uh, dental therapy of, of several different kinds. And they found that the two main predictors were psychological elements and female gender. So just simply being a girl is a huge predictor of seeking things like braces or other orthodontia or teeth whitening. Yeah, and that study was linked to in an article by sociologist Philip Cohen, who noticed a stark gender gap in braces, and he wrote about it for Sociological Images, which was then cross-posted to uh, Pacific Standard Magazine. And he found, looking at a bunch of studies, that girls are twice as likely than boys to say that they don't like their teeth and want braces. He even said, just Google image Mm -hmm. braces, and about 75% of the photos that come up are all, you know, stock images of girls with braces on. And there was even, uh, I don't know why it gave me the heebie-jeebies, but if you go on Pinterest, and because I, I kind of got into a bit of an internet rabbit hole looking at uh, images of braces, you know, kids in braces to see whether, you know, what Cohen said holds up. And it so does. If you go over to Pinterest, there are so many pin boards just of girls in braces. Why? I don't know. I think it's some of its fashion, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, for girls, you know, to be proud of their braces, like beautiful with braces. Okay, but it is definitely it's definitely a thing. Go on Pinterest and, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. Um, But this was something, too, that he found not just in the U.S., but also abroad. Yeah, same in in um, England and Germany that girls are more likely to get braces. Same with adult women. Um, another Google search was, uh, if you Google mother daughter braces, he was talking about, you get pictures of mothers and daughters getting braces together. But if you Google father son braces, it brings you to practices, orthodontist offices run by fathers and sons. Yeah, because adult braces have become more common in recent years. And even among that, you know, clientele demographic, it tends to skew female and I went to the dentist a couple years ago and was so surprised because I grew up had a great dentist and was never recommended for braces and I don't have a a completely perfectly straight mouth of teeth but that is fine Mm -hmm. they're they're like whatever and one of the first things she said was have you ever considered braces? What? Yeah, she was like, if you if you just wear these Invisalign, no one will even be able to tell. Oh, no. Mm-mm, no. That is just such a sales pitch. They're just trying to make money because dental costs are spiraling and they're not getting all their money back from Medicaid. And so they just want to make their money through Invisalign. Well, joke's on you, Caroline, because she was right. You can't see my Invisalign because they're in right now. No, I don't. I don't have them. <laughs> yeah, it did feel... It, it was a peculiar sales pitch to get. And I wonder if a guy who walked in with my teeth and my bite 
Which, yes, it is a perfect bite. Oh, good. If she would have recommended that to him. I don't know. Higher don't expectations know. for women. Um, so, well, and that's what Cohen thinks. Uh, the sociologist we talked about, he thinks that it has a lot to do with these higher standards and higher expectations for female beauty because more girls getting braces has absolutely nothing to do with more, more girls needing braces. Right. There are also studies that he looked at comparing uh, whether kids were getting braces purely for aesthetic reasons or because they did have some kind of dental alignment issue that needed to be corrected. And overwhelmingly, girls were likelier to get them for purely aesthetic reasons. Right. But he was also talking about how, in reality, boys and girls have equal need for braces. Yeah. Among children who need them to correct a problem or whatever straighten teeth, whatever, the need is equal. But girls' perception of their need is way greater. Um, he found that among girls who get braces, their actual need is low. And like we said, with adult braces, that's a trend that continues into adulthood, and that includes cosmetic surgery. Women are much more likely to get various types of cosmetic surgery into adulthood, too, and that goes back to expectations of how girls look. Yeah, there was a survey from the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry, which found that 84% of women reported that they would pay money to improve the appearance of their teeth compared to 75% of men. And that was linked to from a blog post over at The Beheld, written by Autumn Whitefield Madrano, past Stuff Mom Never Told You guest, who was wondering in this post whether the gender gap is due to, yes, those higher beauty standards for women and the way she put it so well, that average teeth on men are considered more acceptable than average teeth on women. And the thing that got her thinking about it, at least in this post, was Will Ferrell's teeth. She was watching Anchorman. And if you've watched Anchorman or seen you know anything with Will Ferrell in it, you'll see that he does not. <laughs> he has pretty, uh, his lower teeth in particular are not all in a straight line. Let's put it that way. But you would never see. I can't think of a single woman I've seen on television who has that noticeably crooked teeth. And I think, and this is just a hypothesis, but I think that if you did, it would be because some message was being played up that this woman was a quote unquote hillbilly or she was poor or something that if a woman's teeth look like that on television or in the movies, it's to deliver a certain message about her. Whereas that's just, that's just Will Ferrell's teeth. Well, and that's the thing because the more we read about teeth, the more it became apparent that even more than gender these days, class and social status are so closely associated with the status of your teeth. Because, you know, going way back in time to, you know, those Elizabethan women of means, they would have those puffers to make sure that their cheeks puffed out in the correct kind of way. And they would have access to whatever sort of early dental care was available, not so for the lower classes. And that's something, though, of poorer people not having access to dental health care that remains today. Right. Um, And there was a 2008 study in the journal Nature that talked about the negative judgments that we lob against people who have teeth that are darker or more decayed. Uh, The darker or more decayed they are, the more negative our judgments are in terms of things like social competence, intellectual ability, psychological adjustment, and relationship satisfaction. It's sort of a visible 
sign of inadequate access to health care and to taking care of oneself. Well, and I think there are more assumptions about the taking care of oneself mm-hmm. part that um, that really stands out because gender in this case did not have a significant effect. If you have decaying teeth, missing teeth, it has an equally negative impact on how people perceive you. And I mean, especially for missing teeth, if you lose a tooth, um, I've, I've had a situation where I've chipped a tooth before and, you know, walked around for a week with a little snaggle tooth and I knew it was going to be fixed, but it drew so much attention. Really? Just because of one. Yeah, because you don't expect to see that. That's true. You know, we have this idea that you should have white, straight, perfect teeth because that signals that you take care of yourself, that you have the, you know, the money to pay for dental visits, that you might have had braces when you were a kid, that you don't have some kind of drug habit that you don't smoke, etc. Right. But we don't automatically think, oh, that girl has good health insurance and doesn't smoke or do meth. We it's just sort of tied up in our assumptions about, oh, t- like you said, taking care of yourself. Exactly. And the perfect character on Internet TV, because I don't know if you can call Netflix TV TV, uh, who embodies this is Pensatucky on Orange is the New Black, who has those stereotypical rotted out meth teeth. And it's so much a part of her character as well as that entire group on Orange is the New Black that she's a part of that we all assume, you know, have had meth problems in the past. And so they have these rotted out teeth. But when she returns with corrected teeth, all of a sudden she's too big for her britches and everybody thinks that she thinks she's too good for them. Yeah, but with the with the rotted out teeth, it's this signaling that she has little education. She's not very smart. She had a drug habit. You know, it's like, or even during uh, in ha- Halloween times when, you know, there are all those false teeth at the costume store. There's always the hillbilly teeth. And they're, you know, poking out, they're missing, they're yellow, they're rotting. Right. And speaking to the Telegraph, uh, Malcolm Gladwell actually cited teeth as the emerging social status signal between rich and poor. And he equated them and the issue of basically dental hygiene and how your teeth appear with obesity problems in terms of what they signal. Yeah, he said there's symptoms of the same set of inferences that are being drawn. So from his logic, the same way that obesity often is associated with having poor lifestyle habits, we place the same set of negative social assumptions and stigmas onto people who have less than perfect looking teeth. And this is happening while the sort of Hollywood projected standards for what your teeth should look like only, you know, continue to increase. Everyone has white, perfect teeth when you flip through a magazine these days. But it's astonishing when you look at the U.S., just the lack of oral health care, because even with Obamacare and universal health care, there's still a massive gap when it comes to dental coverage. There are around 130 million Americans or around 43 percent of the population with zero dental coverage. Yeah. And 45 million Americans actually live nowhere near a dentist. And it seems like in terms of health care and dental care, dental is often Almost like an afterthought because a lot of people who do have health insurance still don't have dental. In 2008, for instance, a quarter of Americans under 65 had no dental coverage and having dental coverage tends to be 
correlated with income and education. So people who have a college education, that's a big predictor of whether you will actually have dental coverage. But that definitely doesn't mean that everyone's going to have it. And even with things like Medicaid and Medicare, the dental provisions are minimal at best. Uh, There is a statistic, I think, coming from the Pew Research Center, which found that in 2011, over half of all kids covered by Medicaid received no dental care, which might have had to do with where they were living because there are these Massive geographical areas all around the U.S. that have no, you know, dental practices because setting up a thriving dental practice can actually be challenging if you're not in a large metropolitan area. But even for poor people over 21 who can get access to Medicaid, the only dental care they can get applies to emergency dental treatments. And even then, it's paid for only on a state by state basis. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of price, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation found that average out-of-pocket dental costs are $873. So basically, dental care for a lot of people, a lot of people is becoming a luxury. And you have the costs of dental care outpacing both the rate of inflation and overall medical cost increases across the board. Well, and think about it, too. As you get older, you you probably need to take even better care of your teeth. But when it comes to Medicare for the elderly, they only get coverage for, again, emergency dental procedures. It doesn't even cover dentures. Um, So it's little wonder, then, that in 2009... 830,050 Americans went to the ER for preventable dental problems because, I mean, what else are they going to do? They can't. There's nowhere else to go. Yeah. I Yeah. And, And it's especially bad when you realize and a lot of people might not realize that poor dental health is linked to a lot of other health problems. My father, who has heart issues, totally preaches that people need to floss. It's a huge thing for him because dental bacteria is linked to things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, pneumonia, preterm birth. I mean, you wouldn't think it. You're like, oh, I ate some cheesy poofs and I'm just going to fall asleep and not worry about it. No, brush those teeth. Brush those cheesy poofs out. But if you are living in a paycheck to paycheck situation or even less, then clearly... You know, what was that? $873 average out of cost dental care. If you don't have insurance, Mm -hmm. that's going to be the last thing that you're going to pay for, most likely, unless you it is to the point to where you are in such extreme pain that you probably will have to go to the emergency room. Right. So it's something that we don't think about very often at all when we just see these celebrities walking down the red carpet with these perfectly imperfect veneers that they've gotten for thousands of dollars, that this is actually a huge issue. And there's so much social class tied up with that. So this modern day quest for a quote unquote perfect smile is about so much more than looking good. I mean, this is about basic health care that people are missing out on. Okay, so now that we have uh, thrown a bunch of these stats at you, I'm, I'm interested in hearing from listeners who maybe have felt discrimination based on their appearance, their especially their teeth appearance. I have a friend who uh, got a tooth knocked out in a freak accident, 
and he didn't worry about getting it replaced for a while because of money issues. But then it came time to do job interviews, and it's like it's, it's not, not it's happen. not in the back of his mouth either. It's one of his front teeth, and he's like, I've got to go shell out some big bucks now to get a to get a fake tooth so that I can get a job. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you've experienced these kinds of things or if you are perhaps a social worker who works with lower income communities on to target these kinds of dental issues, we particularly want to hear from you because there is so much more to our teeth than whether or not we just have perfect straight white paparazzi ready chompers. Remember, shoot me from the left. Yes, and and by the way, if you also are a paparazzo, shoot Caroline from the left. With a camera. Uh, yes, with a camera. <laughs> so send us all of your thoughts on teeth. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And you can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now about insomnia. Well, I have a letter here from Cindy. She says, I was so glad to hear your podcast on lady insomnia, more specifically the idea that the sleep-wake sleep cycle may be a natural occurrence and one our ancestors regularly experienced. In the past, I quote-unquote struggled with insomnia, becoming frustrated and anxious when I would go through periods of awakening for several hours in the night for many nights in a row. My anxiety would put me into that anxiety loop you spoke of. Recently, I heard about Ben Franklin's nighttime adventures. I heard that Mark Twain also experienced great creativity in the night. I realized that I, too, may be just one of the greats, snicker. I decided to accept night wakes as normal and see what that attitude shift might do for me. It has been great. Although there have still been a few times when my wakefulness seemed more exhausting and less enlightening, for the most part, I now accept my night wakes as a time of peaceful reflection or, let's be honest, Facebook alone time. I generally give myself one or two hours in the night of wakefulness before I shut the iPad and attempt to sleep again. Usually that's all it takes. Sometimes I wake again and go through my wake cycle once more, but usually not. I awake with less frustrated anxiety and feel more rested than when I got the same amount, or lack of, sleep but was angry about it. I completely agree that some forms of insomnia are much worse than mine and much more crazy-making. However, much like accepting the pain of childbirth as normal and therefore fearing it less, even though it still hurts, my accepting this sleep-wake-sleep cycle as natural does not change it, but it changes my attitude toward it and therefore makes it less grating, usually, on my soul. So thank you for sharing your experience, Cindy. I also thought about trying out that sleep-wake-sleep thing, but I end up just lying in bed sad. Well, I also have a letter here from CJ about insomnia. And though the whole thing is too long to share, I did want to share some of it. CJ writes, After a certain point, I kind of gave up on trying to conform myself to what is considered normal and quit inflicting the belief of others that it was somehow a huge failing of mine that I couldn't fall asleep by 11 p.m. or fall asleep within 15 minutes of going to bed. Society has very little sympathy for you if you don't wake up early on a permanent basis. Schools and most jobs start in early morning hours, and our society is permeated with the thought that the early bird gets the worm. I learned long ago not to mention my sleep problems because the most common response I get is along the lines of, you must really like to stay out late partying, which couldn't be further from the truth. Recently, I saw new advice for taking melatonin using a formula based on when you wanted to get up. 
This new advice times my melatonin taking closer to 8 p.m. rather than the previous advice from my doctors, which was to take it right before I went to bed. This method of taking the melatonin earlier, along with the other things I do, like trying to wake up at similar times every day, avoiding blue light in the evening, avoiding eating late, getting exercise, and not doing other things in my bedroom, etc., has allowed for my best time so far in terms of sleep over the last 20 years or so. I've usually been able to fall asleep around 1 a.m., and I can also get to my current job around 9 a.m., so I've been able to get around 7 hours of sleep on a somewhat regular basis, which is pretty darn good for me. With taking the melatonin early for the first time in my life, I actually feel a little more normal because I usually feel sleepy before I go to bed, which I never did before. Sleepy and physically tired are unfortunately two different things, and I don't feel like the walking dead most of the time. So I would encourage people to try and get treatment, maybe because it can help, but also don't beat yourself up if it doesn't work as well as you'd hope. Maybe try working your life more around the insomnia rather than the other way around. And for those of you without insomnia, be grateful and please have a little more sympathy for us night owls. So thanks, CJ, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social medias, as well as all of our blog posts, videos, and podcasts, there's one place to go, and it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 